Hello and welcome to Public Segment. Today's episode format is a conversation with an expert. The topic we'll be discussing, public spaces, obviously public spaces across the global south, but more specifically in a region that's close to my heart, that of the Middle East and North Africa. We'll be talking about what public spaces are, how they've been used throughout time, how their destruction was planned, well thought out, a political act, how it's resulted in self-censorship and ways to reoccupy these spaces that can help us better relate to each other as humans, as citizens. We'll be talking also about concept that I find incredibly interesting, that of dignity or karama in Arabic. I will be discussing all this with my guest of the day, Dr. Amr Ali. Just a very brief bio of his many achievements and many positions. Amr is um, co-president of the Arab-German Young Academy of Sciences and Humanities, a research fellow at the Free University in Berlin, as well as a lecturer in sociology at the American University in Cairo. His areas of predilections are Mediterranean studies, global studies, the ideas of exile and citizenship, as well as, amongst other Arab public spheres, which is what we'll be discussing today. He looks at these topics through the lenses of sociological philosophy and political philosophy. As a matter of fact, today we'll be also discussing one of his philosophers of choice, Hannah Arendt. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I've enjoyed having it and recording it with uh, Amr, and I hope for it to be useful to all of us, regardless of where we are, to rethink our relationship to the public spaces that exist in our cities and to find ways to reappropriate them, reoccupy them. Enjoy the episode. Hello, Amr. Hello, Salma. It's really good to have you on with me today, and it's a, it's a privilege, so thank you again. Thank you. It's actually an honor for me to be with you on this, on this uh, show, if you call it. <laughs> That's very kind. So this podcast and this, this series of episodes is uh, about bringing themes and topics that I believe matter to us as citizens uh, of the Global South, um, topics that are often not talked about enough, at least in my opinion, and they're topics that help us reimagine our role as citizens and our relationship with the state, right? So in, in that spirit, with that thinking, I wanted to have you on to discuss the topic of public space and the use we make of public spaces, mostly as your region of focus is uh, in the Middle East and North Africa. So I'd like to start there, if you don't mind. And um, I'll, I'll get a little specific. I'll refer to one of uh, your writings that dates back to 2011 when you were 
covering and covering is an understatement. You were analyzing, you were one of the brilliant minds that was helping us understand what was happening in Egypt and, and in the Arab Spring. Um, you wrote in one of your pieces that out of the revolution that was happening at the time, in Egypt, specifically in Cairo, that the revolution briefly led to, and I quote, a public space where freedom and plurality could emerge. I find this incredible. That means that we didn't have that, or at least it was not part of the norm prior to the revolution. So can you help us understand that a little more? And if you want to even go back a little bit and help us understand what is this idea of public space and how it exists in our psyches as citizens of, of this region of the world. Thank you, Salma. I really appreciate the questions and your interest in this very important topic that has gone through many uh, mutations in the Arab world over the years. Uh, I could actually start off by saying that the word idiot that we know of today in English actually comes from the Greek, uh, ancient Greek, uh, idiotis, which, uh, which means really someone who, uh, yes, it also meant in a way a stupid person, but it actually meant uh, someone who uh, puts their private interests over the public affairs. So they, the person who prioritizes and puts private interests and deprioritizes public affairs. And so this was seen not just as a sign of selfishness, which it was, but also uh, a sign of stupidity because it also could lead to evil. Um, and this is something that I, you know, Hannah Rint touches upon in, in her work, um, why there, it is responsibility of man and woman, woman, of every citizen, to engage in the public space. So, in a sense, the citizen's transformation in the public space really touches upon how they see the past, present, and future in the bigger, in the bigger picture regarding uh, the public world. So to understand this is to understand the, you know, the, the idea of or the essence of a public space. So to go to basics, from a legal point of view, the public space regulates the property of and the rights of access to physical space. A more popular definition comes from Habermas, uh, his idea of the public sphere, in which he states uh, that society, the state meets society and therefore stands for the condition under which public debate might become a legitimizing basis for democratic political action. But the public space has evolved since then, to mean that it's not a static location, but a set of relations in constant flux spanning the physical space and the ideas and values poured into the dynamic stream to enable more social spaces to sprout. Uh, I'd also add, uh, moreover, beyond the psychological and communal need for public space, um, there's a political need for such a space. Um, and this is at the heart of, I think, like I'd say, um, the Jewish-German philosopher Hannah Arendt, that the idea of being human is to be free in the public space, where mm -hmm. speech and acts are, are witnessed and merit a response, therefore, um, you know, accentuating uh, present-day political existence. And it's really about um, the idea of political agency to feel that you have a sense of worth in the world and you can really only do that in the public. Of course, you can only do so much in the private sphere, but the public is where you are really the best. Um, so there's also this idea also of public happiness where a citizen um, not only, um, you know, 
not only participates to secure private interests or advantages but to go beyond, but to enjoy the performative act for the public interest, as well as a knowledge and sensation that it is above or unlike the enjoyment of private activity. Uh, and this is why uh, when you see happiness in the public sphere, we can think of um, festivals and carnivals. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's one type of happiness. Right. But happiness that comes from a revolution, for example, is, is unprecedented. Mm -hmm. Just because it really takes out every single emotion in you. And you really feel like you are operating in the cracks of history. Mm -hmm. And that you have a role bigger than yourself. Because now you're part of a bigger movement and you're part right. of a bigger movement. And so uh, this is really what you can say is the magic of public space, what it can do when it goes from sometimes static, but to, to often uh, a dynamic space of appearance. I find it really interesting the, that you started with um, uh, the original definition of idiot is someone who values private interest over uh, public affairs. And I feel like I want to put the majority of uh, individuals who govern us, at least in our, in our region, in, uh, in this bucket. Um, because public spaces, the physical public spaces, do exist, although I do believe that they have been destroyed and undervalued. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there was, in, in, in a first phase, an actual physical destruction of the public space that has then gone on to be more of a, um, a, an abstract destruction of the space. Because we didn't have the physical space, we couldn't create what you've spoken about, which is this, um, th this set of relations, uh, this, this, these opportunities to express ourselves, to show our individualities and our identities and to connect in solidarity. Would you say that's correct? Yes, that's, that's a large part of it. Um, there is, there is a, I would say, a way that it, it somehow goes back to the elites in question. Because if the elites, if the head of states do not get the legitimacy from the public space, from the public voice, then they will fear it. Um, it's as, really as simple as that. They will need to stage manage, manage it. They need to choreograph it. Mm -hmm. uh, the assembly of people strikes fear. Mm -hmm. And so it needs to be destroyed. It needs to be sanitized. Uh, it needs to be sterilized uh, in some way or another. And I wouldn't say that people uh, are necessarily, uh, or sorry, should I say that it's not so much top-down repression there is also self-repression and right. self -centered. And that operates from many angles. You find the concept of voluntary servitude, mm -hmm. where people willingly serve the regime by acting as, you know, like they might say in Egypt, uh, uh, the noble citizen, right. <laughs> where they uh, arrest or call on someone or spy on someone. And this makes the public space very frightful. It makes it very, very dangerous for one another. Can I, sorry, can I just ask you, where does that come from? Is it internalized fear? Or is it uh, an acute awareness of potential consequences of not behaving as such? Or what is it? I think it's a combination of factors. 
uh, it, it could be, and it often is, the lack of a political culture over the decades and people uh, grow up with seeing a dictator for life and, and thinking this is the norm, that there cannot be alternatives. It could be the fact that stability is prized above everything else and anyone who questions this stability, even photographing something that would be harmless, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe uh, rubbish on the street, for example, mm-hmm. and this is seen as destroying the image of a country, etc. Right. And then you would see citizens get involved in, in something like that. Uh, and I say citizens in quotes because they don't live up to the real true meaning of, of, of citizens. Uh, but also the fear develops when you have a state in raw power. Uh, where um, it's not so much a carrot and stick, it's just, it's, it's carrot versus stick, 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 you know. Um, and so there, there, is, there is a need to also find one's value in asserting a miniature version of a dictator on the street level. Mm-hmm. Um, and so elites often set the tone for that. And if you have a frightful environment, a despotic environment. Many of these regimes might not even be authoritarian in the classic sense, but despotic in the sense that uh, the, the whole society runs on passion. And right. when that happens, uh, the rule of the rule of law and order takes um, a back seat. Well, I, w- I wouldn't say uh, order, but maybe just say the rule of law takes a back seat, and and people work on the passions of the day, especially around election or the anniversary of a revolution or the, the, the firing or hiring of a minister. Um, so when passion is, is up, it, it does make the public space uh, very precarious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and people just become an unknown quantity more than usual when right. you deal with them. You mentioned earlier um Hannah Arendt, she speaks of so identity and the role of being able to express your identity in public space, but also be able, it's a space where you can relate to others. We've seen that on a massive scale and in this, in this incredible outburst during the 2011 uprisings. But how can we actually rethink the way we occupy our public space as citizens? Sure, revolution is always there. It is always a possibility. But just in our daily lives, how do we reoccupy that space in an effort to be able to relate better to one another, to be able to express ourselves? It really depends if we're talking about the individuals or society or are we talking about certain social groups. Uh, people in general need to operate in the public space. Uh, it's, you know, it's where they meet each other. It's where they make things happen. One of the primary problems uh, has a lot to do also, I think, with with, um, middle-class consumption. When Mm -hmm. you have the middle class that is obsessed with uh, consumer goods and uh, real estate and everything that you can imagine that is really away from what is known as the political and the social, Mm -hmm. in in a deeper sense, you get this type of self-imposed authoritarianism in, 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 in the public space. So indifference is really one of the enemies of um, a vibrant public space. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, one of the 
coins Hannah Arendt makes in her book, uh, her seminal book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, where she notes in Germany, in Weimar, Germany, in the 1920s, many Germans just withdrew from public life. They, you know, and left the communists and the, and the, and the Nazis to fight each other in the streets. No one else was involved uh, to, uh, to counter all that. So the, the rise of the Third Reich was only possible with the destruction or the indifference of, uh, of citizens in the public space right. in the 1920s. So we can look at it in, in, in this way as well. So Arendt, like in her book on, on revolution, she expands on, on the idea of an animated public life through the lost treasure of the revolutionary tra tradition. So the, the American and French revolutions formed the centerpiece of her understanding of the revolutionary spirit derived from the principles which on both sides of the Atlantic originally inspired what she calls the men of revolutions. So the principles being and the attainment of uh, public freedom, public happiness, and public spirit. So all these three are geared towards more than just the will to coexist, but the desire for citizens to speak out in public and be witnessed and heard by others. Public right. freedom is concerned with citizens meeting each other in a climate of plurality and equality. Uh, each person disclosing their identity, speech, and deed to the other. And I'll say importantly, public freedom is a space to begin something new invoking novelty that can potentially change uh, the course of events. Um, public happiness, which I just discussed before, but I'll expand on that, is fueled by the joy of discussions and deliberations injecting into the citizen a sensation akin performing on a large theater stage, but with implications, as well as reducing the incentive to retreat back into private spaces. This part is really important. Right. Reducing the incentive to retreat back into private spaces. Uh, finally, public spirit is guided by a, a deep care for the public realm in which citizens subvert their private uh, material and economic interests for the sake of the state of the world. Mm -hmm. So these three principles illustrate that the public as the primary ideal and their centrality in an ongoing mode of uh, political life and participation. And this is really the question and, uh, that was asked and witnessed and answered in 2011 and even in years after that. Uh, so the, the idea that people can exercise uh, their sense of freedom spontaneously, and this right. is the thing that we forget about the Arab Spring, yeah. is that no one took political courses, no one was part of a uh, political party, no one was reading Karl Marx or Trotsky or, or, or any of that. Mm -hmm. People just learned on the spot and they just knew what to do. It right. was a spontaneous birth and new beginning of being political in their own unique ways mm -hmm. across mm -hmm. the MENA region. Uh, in Egypt, for, for example, it was the neighborhood councils. And, and it also, and it, it's it is hard to empirically measure this, but you know, the sensation of public happiness was unparalleled as right. it broke the preconception in the MENA region that happiness was best found in the private sphere and consumption. Remember, we have a lot of malls in the region. And there's a relationship between malls and keeping people quiet or focused on, on, on uh, shopping. To the extent I've seen in some malls uh, in Egypt and in the Gulf where they've taken away the seats, the public seating mm -hmm. in the mall, yeah. that's said a lot 
it's mm -hmm. to keep you moving, distracted, not able Consuming, to Consuming, of and course. Yeah. And, and, and the only time you can sit is really at a cafe or the food court, but you're consuming. Yeah. <laughs> so the, um, this idea of, of consumption has been really part and parcel of the mutant capitalism that is devouring the MENA region in different forms, uh, more intense, for example, in Egypt, less intense other, other, uh, other places, but still it's, it's there. Uh, but, the, but what we have to remember is that we need uh, a new conception of what really is happiness, which is tied to karama, to dignity. Mm -hmm. But what we learned from post-2011 was that happiness meant the active duty of citizens to collaborate with fellow citizens to achieve the common good of the body politic which was expressed among many mediums through songs and street arts. Mm -hmm. And also importantly, the public spirit broke free from the monotonous, homogenizing and consumer-driven tyranny to be able to create a conception of what best elevates the welfare of the public. So there were not decision makers involved in this, it was the yeah. public that came up with the idea of the public good. Mm -hmm. So when you hear of people uh, speaking of a utopia in 2011, they're not lying. They really felt the closest sensation to a utopia that they've never felt before and they've never experienced since. Right. You've managed to um, weave in so many uh, essential topics uh, and, and such diverse themes from political economy to uh, philosophy and sociology and and political philosophy. And this is what you do and you do it brilliantly. Um, but th this insistence on the mutant capitalism, as you called it, and uh, our obsession with consumerism, again, is it our fault? Is it not? Was it imposed upon us? Uh, were we brainwashed into it? That's a whole other conversation, but it has limited these interactions from human to human, right? From citizen to citizen. Outside of the household, you don't get these meaningful, meaningful interactions. And so you close the door to any sort of change happening, or as you said, these sparks, these um, spontaneous conversations, that common thinking to evolve, right? Because we've closed those doors. Um, but I always like to finish on a, on a bit of a hopeful note. I start with the, the pessimism of the reason and try to end with the, <laughs> the optimism of the will. And so what roads are open to us as citizens of this region? What can we create? What change can we see happen? I, I think it's really uh, goes back to how we uh, define karama and dignity. So this was, this was a new moral paradigm that was born in 2011. Prior to that, the MENA region existed in a world of shut-off, of honor. And this mm -hmm. had a vengeance element to it. Karama had an equality element to it. And it was n never seen before in the history of protests. Um, because often people protest for jobs uh, yeah. for uh, bread for freedom mm -hmm. but karma was a new introduction in uh, political theory but as well as uh, you know day-to-day -day activities that took place in 2011 and i would say that sometimes we we think too much uh, in, the, in the in the bigger picture and we take a lot on our shoulders i worry if someone in marrakesh can boast about friends in Beirut, but doesn't know their neighbor in the same building. And the, the agency 
that one can have can be just in the neighborhood uh, and, 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 and bettering that neighborhood or the, the, the building, etc. But right. the atomization is, is really a problem, I find, in, in many places I go mm-hmm. uh, across the MENA region. And one of the questions I ask as a sociologist is just, you know, do you know your neighbors? Right. Uh, have, and, and it's surprising the amount of answers you get uh, in the negative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm always impressed with the Kaspers and the, the, the impoverished areas. They still have those, those bonds. Uh, it's under different types of strain, but still people, there is a close-knit communities. But it feels that the more social mobility increases and aspirational uh, goals are achieved uh, and people become uh, upward mobile and that, uh, the idea of neighborhood or neighbor just takes not even a backseat, it's thrown out of a car. Right, right. And I find this really, really problematic. It's, it's a problem mm-hmm. of modernity. It's, it's, and it's not something unique to the MENA region, but it's something we historically associated with the West. Um, and now we're seeing this intrusion into the big yeah. cities of, of the MENA region. So, I think that the the idea of dignity has to come back to a proactive approach to get to know your neighbors. Right. You know, as banal as that might, uh, as that might sound, mm-hmm. but it actually speaks volumes to your ability to influence. Of course. Uh, yeah, that's that's one. The other matter is that uh, the the because we are very passive parts of of this history. Uh, Many, in many ways, there's, you know, there's been the COVID wave, the, you know, the war in Ukraine, and it's taking a massive political and, and, and economic um, impact. And the, the tourism industry that's been devastated and it's only starting to pick up again. Uh, this has affected many lives. But the question is, we can also be witnesses to what is happening. Um, and I think when the best thing we can do is write it, write it down. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got to be witnesses to this era because when the momentum comes, we won't have time to write. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and we won't even be able to stay seated to the end of a theater play. Uh, so it's important that when we live in an age of slowness uh, and lethargicness, is that we try to the best of our ability to find inspiration, to write, uh, whatever that may be, uh, because we are going to be writing to the times, to the times that we live in. And so it could be poetry, it could be uh, short stories, novels, uh, prose, essays, Mm -hmm. but the fact that we write, we document, and we leave it for the next generation to pick up on that and build something. And maybe it will be their time and something will happen. I, I don't know. This is the thing about the future. It's just you know, it, it is so difficult, not only to predict, but no matter how much plans we can make, mm-hmm. make we live in the world of, you know, inshallah. And, and I think this is good because we got to divide, we got to separate optimism from hope. And, right. and it's been said before that optimism is the same as pessimism in the sense that you will be optimistic no matter what happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you if you get a salary raise or a car you're in a car crash you you will be optimistic. That's not how optimism should even work in the first place. Right. And so 
optimism and pessimism is usually just really the same sort of world you flipped over, but doesn't have a an active ingredient of of, of moving. Uh, it's it's just colors your perception. That's really it. But hope is something else. Amal is something very very powerful because what hope tells you is that you wake up in the same day as your enemies and uh, I don't want to say your enemies but you know, people who want to do you harm or yes. every, every human being has, um, has, that, uh, has the same unpredictability during the day and you get the same and you can remake the world anew and, and you, you cannot but the thing is, is that you and everyone else get the element of surprise uh, the, when you wake up in the morning. That was such a wonderful conclusion. I will not ruin it by adding anything else, um, but I love your idea of all of us being witnesses of our times. And I think um, this is something that we should be speaking about more, each of us in our different venues. So on this note, thank you so much, uh, for doing this. Thank it was so an utter pleasure. This was my honor. Thank you again. Thank you again to our listeners for joining us for this episode of Public Segment. We hope you join us again next week for a new episode dropping on Wednesday. It will be a conversation with our in-house expert. See you then. This podcast is produced by No Policy. No Policy is an innovative research, training, and co-design center dedicated to working with governments, civil society groups, NGOs, and the private sector to improve public policies and redesign public services around citizens' needs and demands.